Talk with Ben Tompkins. Hey, hey, how you doing, everybody? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by Nobody Currently. These are the Mixtape Days. How you doing, everybody? Good to have you in with us. If you're just joining us for the second time, you're a first-time listener last week, and now you're back for another round, it's good to have you back, my friends. And to my day ones, shout the fuck out to you guys, because you've been riding with the kid since allowing me to reintroduce myself And we're going to continue on this ride together. I don't know exactly where we're headed, but I know that it's going to be one hell of a ride and one hell of a story. Now, speaking of one hell of a story, do I have a series of stories on today's episode for you guys today? Today's episode is one of my favorites that I've ever done. I know I shouldn't say that. It's like picking favorites with your children, right? All of these episodes that I produce, I feel like they're my kids. I spend so much freaking time on them, you know? It's like, but yet I feel compelled to disclose that this is one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. And it's because of my guest, my guy Brad Steinfeld. Let me tell you a little about Brad Steinfeld. Brad Steinfeld left Louisville when he was 16 years old. He wasn't getting what he wanted or needed there. And he had been bitten by the rock climbing bug, so he decided to pack his bags and he eventually hitchhiked his way to one of the meccas of rock climbing in North America, El Dorado Canyon. By the time he was 23, his life unfolded like an adventure novel, full of stories of traveling around the world, climbing rocks and mountains, and living a minimalist lifestyle in places like Boulder, Alaska, Washington, and Yosemite. He remembers being on a trailhead 14 miles away when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, crossing paths with some of the greatest climbers in the world, like Yvonne Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia. And then there's also that time he spent a week living with the Hell's Angels. True story. When he finally decided that it was time to begin his ascent into the business world, his life changed again when he was introduced to a guy that sold medical devices. Brad had picked up his EMT certification somewhere along the way, so he spoke enough of the language, and he was confident that he could learn as he went along. Well, as he began to find success in his new role, so too did the company. They went public shortly thereafter, and the future was bright. Then his phone rang. It was the FBI. Unbeknownst to him, the company's founder had been cooking the books and engaging in fraudulent business practices and was now on the run. It made sense to Brad, who had been wondering for months why his company wasn't paying him the thousands of dollars worth of paychecks he was owed, but always one to find multiple routes to the top, he continued his climb. With the leftover inventory he had, he started his own company, and over the course of his career, he not only raised two beautiful children with the love of his life, he eventually did so well that he sold his business and comfortably retired before his 50th birthday. But he wasn't done. In 2018, he founded Yellow Submarines Incorporated, an initiative aimed at connecting musicians and artists with venues seeking fresh and local talent, and the parent and production company behind his Back Porch Concert Series. You've heard of the hero's journey, but this, my friends, is an entrepreneur's epic and one of my favorite episodes that I've ever done. If you dig this interview, please let us know by dropping a quick rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts or by sharing it with someone you know would dig this episode as well. 
It really helps me out. It helps contribute to the growth of this show. And it takes like two seconds, you know? Bada bing, bada boom, you're in, you're out. Just leave a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and I would appreciate it so much, so much, so much. We've got a lot of exciting things coming up the rest of the year. IRideWithBennyT.com just launched last week. Shout out to Kristen Garland, founder of CMGDigitalMedia.com, the designer of this beautiful website that your boy now owns. And that is where I'm going to be putting a lot more content. So I've got stuff that I'm writing for the blog, almost daily content going up. I've got a lot of merchandise that's going to be coming out over the next year plenty of videos for more of the open mic sessions. There's a lot to be excited about, and now I finally have a place to be excited about it, other than just this podcast, which of course you know as you're listening, right? But there's the website now, and I'm really excited about that. So we got some good things in the works, and I'm really, really happy. Last week was the 100th episode special since June 2020. It's been 100 episodes since Allow Me to Reintroduce Myself dropped. And it's been a ride, man. It's been a ride. I continue to go up and down and over and out. And it is really tough sometimes, you know? It's really tough. Not going to lie. I'm coming out of like a two-week little dip right here, a little depression. You know, I was kind of spiraling there for a minute. But you just got to continue to begin again. You just got to continue to go back to the well one more time. And I finally, after a couple weeks, dusted myself off picked myself back up and said, okay, I'm ready to begin again. And I'm glad. I'm very glad because it was, I'm, I'm, you know, there's some things that I'm able to share with you guys. There's some things that I'm unable to share with you guys, mostly because I don't want to get caught holding the bag again and talk about something that I think is happening, that might be happening, that it could be life-changing. And then when it doesn't happen, that's a really big bummer, and you got to go back, and you got to be like, hey, remember that thing that I spent like an hour on last week's episode? Talk, Yeah, it's not happening anymore. That's kind of uh, <laughs> embarrassing, uh, deflating a little bit, you know, but I can tell you that we're working on some big moves. We're trying to make 2022 the best year that we've ever had, not only for the show, but just for me personally. We're trying to level up, and sometimes that's a bumpy road. The entrepreneur's epic, man. There's plenty of hurt and heartbreak along the way, but if you continue to stay in that saddle and stay committed to that journey, man, one day your story could sound like Brad Steinfeld's as well. And with that, we're going to jump right in. Here is my interview with Brad Steinfeld. All right, I'm joined now in the studio by my man, Brad Steinfeld. Brad, how you doing, buddy? Doing great, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's so good to see you in the studio. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. What do you think of this place? It's very professional. I'm quite impressed. I'm oh, you know, thank you. Anytime I get around an environment that's got sound panels and so forth, uh, yeah, it gets my attention, for sure. And you're one of the very first people that ever introduced me to vinyl records, and as a matter of fact... I kept what small vinyl collection I had at your house because you were one of the only ones that had the setup. And when I say this guy has this setup, I mean, he is a craftsman at this stuff. I mean, he was almost bending down, checking the needle on the one that I got in here. Passionate, very passionate <laughs> about my music. So it's a perfect tie-in because we're going to spend some time talking about live music. We'll talk about the Back Porch Concert Series, something that you've started that is now continuing to grow very, very cool. But 
we're going to start where most of these stories start, which is where'd you grow up? How'd you grow up? The floor is yours. All right. Terrific. So I grew up, I, I am a Louisville guy. As a little kid, grew up over in the Hikes Point area, pretty much East End kid, and went to Ballard High School mm. uh, back in the day when Ballard High School was one hell of a basketball school. Yeah. Jeff Lamp, Lee Raker. I think at one time I figured out that the uh, Ballard class I was in or one ahead of me had four players that played in the NBA. That's a high school team. Wow. Which is pretty remarkable. So, yeah. What year did you graduate? So, I was in the class of 1979, and I did not graduate from Ballard. As you know, Ben, I uh, made an early exit from Louisville as a 16-year-old, and I ended up finishing my high school in Virginia. Interesting. So, we'll come back to that. But, well, actually, you know what? Let's just stay there. Why did you leave at 16? Well, so, okay. My life, probably one of the most profound events that took place, certainly as a young person in my life, occurred about five minutes from where I've lived the last 20-plus years, and that's out in Oldham County. There is a rock cut on the highway out there. And back in the day in high school, and probably still occurs, You'd pull off the side of the road, and there was a small trail. You'd scamper up to the top of this, I don't know, 40, 50-foot rock face. And it was known uh, there were probably a few beers uh, drunk up there and a a few things lit up there. But one day I was up there. I was probably 15 years old, 16 years old. And some guys had a rappelling rope set up which just intrigued the heck out of me. And so after sitting around a while, I got up the nerve and said, could I try? And sure, got roped up, got to the edge, looked over, again, 40 feet, and chickened out. Tucked my tail between my leg, went home, yada, yada. Bugged me so much, and I so wanted to do it, that I went back the next couple weekends, and sure enough, sooner or later, somebody else showed up with another rope, down I went. And when I say it changed my life because I got such a thrill out of the rappelling, next thing I know, I was over at the uh, Bardstown Road, had a little backpack shop that had some climbing gear. And I think I probably bought a carabiner and maybe a figure eight for rappelling. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. But you got the basics. But I got, I got enough to feel like an outdoorsman, a climber. And that was about the end of it. But about that time, my parents had been divorced. My mother decides to move to Charlottesville, Virginia, to take a job in radio. Mm, that's a tough place to live, I hear. Yeah, it was, it was a nice place to live. <laughs> and I was having problems at home. Again, I was about 16 and was having some issues at home. Somewhere between the evil stepmother that didn't particularly care for me and I was all too ready to return the sentiment, just decided that it was not a good place for me to be. And so I left. I took my belongings and hit the road. Lived in a friend's trailer down on River Road, at a friend's dad's trailer <laughs> uh, down on River Road for a week or two, and then moved in with my grandparents for another few weeks. I made my way down to the Greyhound bus station in downtown Louisville Mm. 
and took about a 20-hour Greyhound trip over to live at least for a while with my mother, who, again, was in Charlottesville. 20 hours on a Greyhound bus was quite interesting. You meet some (laughs) really interesting people, good people, but some really interesting people on the back of a Greyhound bus. But I I made it to Charlottesville and promptly checked into Charlottesville High School and the really nice young guidance counselor got all my transcripts together and so forth and informed me that, unfortunately, instead of going into my senior year, that the standards of Virginia compared to Kentucky, the transfer rationale, if you will, had me starting back into the beginning of my junior year. Oh, man. Which I'm like, no, not going to happen. <laughs> I'm done. I'm not. And my mother said, I understand where you're coming from, but you've got to have a high school diploma. So I said, fine. When do they give the GED out next? So I got my GED. About the same time being over in Virginia, we're, of course, on the Charlottesville's on the doorstep of the Blue Ridge Parkway and the Blue Ridge Mountains. A lot more backpacking, a lot more climbing going on. And so Every chance I got started, I had a little motorcycle. Didn't have a driver's license, but I think we stole a license plate off an old motorcycle. And (laughs) I rode around Charlottesville for about six months with a little dirt bike. But I would get up to the climbing areas every chance I got. And between that and working at the, got a job at Kmart. And I was happy as a clam. You know, young guy, I actually ended up moving out, shared a a neat little house with a guy that I had become good friends with. So to say I got the climbing bug and the granola head attitude (laughs) would be an understatement. And so that just set me on the next course of my life. What is it about rock climbing that you feel so connected to? Back then, I don't know if it was just the pure adventure You know, one of the things in reflecting now, looking back, is you hear the term, you know, adventurer tossed about. And I never really thought of myself as an adventurer until I really looked back at some of the things that I did and have done and still like to do. So I don't know if that initial oomph was just the adventure. I'd always been a passionate about the outdoors, whether it was fishing or hunting or just walking around in in the woods. And so maybe it was probably a combination of getting that along with the adrenaline kick that came with it. I don't know. But all I know is I hung around Charlottesville, made a little money at Kmart. And to show you how long ago that was, they paid you in cash. Um, (laughs) Kmart, the entire store, at the end of the week, you would go to the little... uh, window in the back in the HR department and they would hand you a little manila envelope with all your deductions handwritten Mm -hmm. on it. So I put away a little money and started buying climbing gear. Decided I was going to go west and needed to go back to Louisville to tie up a few loose ends. So I had gotten my driver's license and bought a 73 Chevy Impala. Hey. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yep, yep. Took four lanes. You know, it was just a big honky old old vehicle, but it got me around. Drove it back to Louisville, 
kept buying, accumulating equipment and good quality sleeping bag and, you know, ice axes, all the kind of stuff that was readily available around Louisville. Which, which takes a minute to really build up that collection to where you can go out on the weekends or a solo trip or something because there's really a lot that you're having to think about and prepare for. So that's cool that you started building that collection at an early age. And um, Well, I had my sights set. You know, it was kind of like, okay, if I'm going to climb Mount McKinley, I, you know, let's see, I need a good sleeping bag, you know, a down bag. And, and even back then, I mean, that stuff is was expensive. Yeah. So, you know, that's when I sold the car. That's what bought my uh, low expedition backpack and my climbing ropes. And so I'm in Louisville, lived with my grandparents, the judge, you know, because <laughs> my background, I mean, I come from the epitome of conservative white privilege. And uh, so I lived with the judge and uh, my grandmother, wonderful, wonderful people that took really good care of me. They were very sympathetic. They were very understanding to kind of the family dynamics that I had found myself in with my father and the stepmother and, you know, young person trying to figure out where to go, what to do. And so at some point I said, well, thanks. And, um, I'm hitchhiking West and my pack weighed about 70 pounds. And here I am in Louisville. My grandfather dropped me off. The judge <laughs> dropped me off on the uh, other side of the Kennedy bridge. And I'm standing there with this 80-pound mountaineering pack in southern Indiana <laughs> and with ice axes lashed to the outside and ropes draping off. You know, I look like Threadman Hillary, you know, on, on I-64. Like, is he going to climb that bridge? Right. So my destination was Boulder, Colorado, which, you know, was kind of the mecca of rock climbing, El Dorado Canyon. And so I was going to go to El Dorado Canyon and become a, a real, real accomplished mountain climber, rock climber. And a funny note, I remember years later talking to my family, particularly my grandfather and father, about it. And I'm like, you know, in retrospect, you guys were really kind of chill about me leaving. In fact, I was, my father was somewhat out of sight, out of mind, but everybody was still kind of in the mix. And my grandfather looked at me and thought, our plan was assuming you wouldn't get anywhere. <laughs> that, that you'd stand over there on the side of the road, kind of like uh, that scene from the movie, The Jerk, where he puts his thumb out and just kind of yada, yada, yada. <laughs> and we just figured you'd come home the next day with your tail between your legs. And it took me about, literally about 48 hours to get to Colorado. I had no problems. For the next five to six years, I hitchhiked. I think I owned a car maybe, I don't know, 10% of that time. But I had absolutely no problems hitchhiking all over the world. Always heading toward a climbing destination. Man, which is just such a foreign concept to people past a certain age and generation. Hitchhikers... It's just not something that you commonly see anymore. Right. But then again, there weren't things like Uber or Lyft and taxi services. And so I just, to think about getting into a car with a total stranger, I guess it's no different than doing Uber, but it's just 
back then, it was just such a way to get around the country. It was how people got around. And I'm just curious if you had any any time that you were in a car that you started to feel uncomfortable or was it mostly if somebody's stopping to pick up a hitchhiker, they're probably going to be a pretty cool person. Right. You know, you mentioned Uber and my guess is, is that my experiences with hitchhiking are probably very similar to yours with picking up Uber rides in that, sure, every great once in a while, you got a jerk mm-hmm. for one reason or another. But 99% of the time, you met wonderful people. I mean, I literally had people after half an hour in their car would invite me back to their house. You can throw your sleeping bag. When I tell them, well, I just sleep on the side of the road. I'll just hop over in the woods and put my sleeping bag out and little tent up if I need it. And I was offered places to sleep. I'd have people say, Here's a $10 bill, have dinner, just really, really wonderful people and really no bad scenarios. The scariest, I remember, I, um, I was on my way to Alaska. I was going to hitchhike to Alaska and figured I'd better go see my mom, who I'd not seen in a while, because I figured I'd be gone for a while. She had since moved from Charlottesville to Phoenix. So I'm, I hitchhiked down to Phoenix and spent some time, loved Phoenix, and fell in love, fell head over heels with actually a woman my, my mother knew uh, <laughs> down there. But on my way hitchhiking out of Phoenix to Alaska a month or two later, guy pulls over and this picks me up. Decent looking guy in the Ford Taurus, nothing. And, and I sit, throw my bag, uh, my uh, backpack in the back seat and plop myself down and go to buckle the seatbelt, and I look over, and there's a pistol laying on the seat. And I'm like, ah, crap, here we go. Well, it turns out the guy was a line inspector for Arizona Power and Electric. And he said, I'm by myself. I'm out in the boonies of Arizona, quite often and on remote parts of the reservation lands and so forth. So I just, you know, I always have that at hand. Sure. Couldn't have been nicer. And so aside from that, the only problem scenarios were every once in a while a drunk would pick you up or somebody who had something kind of sexual on their mind, if you will, and comments were made and it was always a no, thanks, but no thanks. Can you let me out? Never had a problem. Got picked up by the Hells Angels, spent a week with the Hells Angels, living with them up in Washington State. I mean, this is just like, are you Hunter S. Thompson? Like, what the hell? Not not quite that. I don't think I knew that one. Tell me that one. What was that like? I I was living in, after uh, living in Boulder, I went to California to climb over there for a while and then went back to Boulder for a short period of time. And being a poor climbing bum... I mean, dirt bag climbing bum. That was just the lifestyle. (laughs) We would go in Boulder to the Student Union Center at UC. They had a movie theater and a bowling alley, and it was just a place, you know, that had electricity and bathrooms and, and whatnot. And back then, before forums and the Internet, all the universities had huge bulletin boards, in these student, you know, if you were selling a car, needed a roommate, whatever. And we're just kind of goofing around looking, and I see a note up there said climbing instructor needed for kids camp. And I'm like, 
finally a way to make money climbing. That's even better. There you go. So I call the guy up, and he's a student at UC who has family friends that own basically a rich kids camp in the San Juan Islands, north of Seattle. And he had been the instructor for years and couldn't do it this year, but told him that um, he would find somebody qualified, that he'd, you know, vet somebody well. So I talked to the guy. He says, I think he'd be ideal. Here's the number of the owners up in Seattle. Talk to them, and y'all can go from there. Call them up, and conversation went well. They're like, the job's yours, but we do need to meet you. And I said, well, I'm in Boulder. I have no car. I mean, I was honest with them as to what I was and what I wasn't. Sure. So I said, they said, well, we got to make a decision in the next day or two because time is of the essence. I'm like, I'll be there. So within hours, I had stuffed my low expedition pack and put all my crap in there and started hitchhiking and got a ride. I'll never forget. I got a ride from a young guy who was going to the Seattle area to become a airline pilot. Uh, must've been a school or college that that was one of their big curriculum. So mm. he gave me a ride a good part of the way, but then I was in southeastern Washington state, really pretty rainforesty kind of area. And it was raining and the school bus pulls over and I get in, and it's one of those deals where they had taken out the back, like, 15 rows, and they had their motorcycles back there. And the front half of it, they had taken plywood and put a little bathroom in. And, I mean, and started talking to these guys. And they said, yeah, we're with the Seattle chapter of the Hells Angels, and we're down. We come down here camping a lot, and you want to hang out? I'm like, <laughs> well— I got to be in Seattle. Said, well, hang around for a couple days. So I contacted the folks in Seattle, said, if I can be there in like four or five, yeah, come on up. So I hung out with those guys for a few days. And my experience with them is what you hear so, so often, and that is they were great guys. I wouldn't screw with them for all the tea in China. I mean, you just, as long as you were cool with them, they would give you the shirt off their backs, and they darn near did. And so uh, spent some time with them and then headed up to uh, the interview. And I didn't end up getting the job. That was the only downside. No way. Yeah, yeah. They had another family friend that at the last minute, they said, you know, we can't say no to this guy. You know, oh, my God. So, but they're like, go on up to the camp. Camp didn't start for another couple of weeks. I said, at least go up to the camp on us. You can have the run of the place. And it was really cool. It was a really cool experience. I mean, you came all that way, right? It's not like you had an easy time to get there. What did you do once you realized that that wasn't going to be something that was sustainable? Were you in scramble mode or were you just like, well, I'm here. Where do we go from here? Well, again, you know, that was probably one of the most freeing feelings that I had in having that backpack. And to this day, I like my creature comforts, and I certainly like my uh, materialistic lifestyle and whatnot. But to this day, a big part of me relishes in the fact that I know all too well I can be very happy with everything I was carrying on my back, that I was happy as a clam. And so 
the scrambling that you're talking about simply consisted of, okay, well, this isn't going to work out, so what else is around? And I decided to go over and climb Mount Baker, really prominent, good-sized mountain over in, uh, in Washington State. So I went up and climbed Mount Baker. And um, that didn't go so well. I uh, ended up getting a pretty good dose of frostbite on uh, part of my foot. I had a, uh, back then, that was the very early days of the first Cortex coming out. And there was a company called Early Winners. I think they were based in Seattle or Tacoma, somewhere up in there. And they were one of the early companies that started producing some technical gear, one of which being a Gore-Tex tent, you know, lighter weight, yada, yada. And early winners provided me with a a demo tent to try. So I'm up on Mount Baker, soloed it, probably about 500,000 feet from the summit. You know, it's wintertime. I mean, I I was prepared for it, gear-wise and whatnot. And middle of the night I wake up and the seam of this tent had separated. If you recall now, if you think now, if you look at Gore-Tex, it kind of have a weave pattern in it. And that's to prevent a tear from spreading. Well, back then they didn't know it. So I wake up full of snow. I'm wet. It's five below zero. It's in the middle of the night and uh, I'm on the top of this mountain. So I made my, it took me about five hours, pretty much all night shoved what I could in my pack, started down, had my headlamp on, made it down. But I remember the most disheartening thing of the whole episode was the fact that once I got to the parking lot there, it was still about a five-mile walk out to the highway. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't anybody around. It was first thing in the morning in the winter. So I had to then walk this distance to get down to the highway, hitchhiked, and went to a hospital and we live to talk about it, but I do carry a scar. So, you know, back to your question about scrambling and what do you do next? Again, everything at that point revolved around climbing and did for the next several years. And when you say frostbite, are we talking like that scene from Mr. Deeds where he puts the fire poker through it? Or was it just like pink and stingy? I mean, you were losing feeling in the foot. What was going on? Yeah, losing feeling in the foot. I mean, that took place pretty early on. But essentially, they, the skin, about a third of my right pinky, small toe on my right foot, they had to cut just because it had gotten, I think the term's necrosed, where essentially the tissue was just frozen and dead. So Hmm. nothing debilitating. And as years went on and, and the severity and size of the mountain climbing I was doing got bigger and bigger, you know, I was really fortunate to spend a lot of time with some of the best climbers in the world, the Mount Everest climbers, and where I saw evidence of really bad frostbites and accidents. So that was just a nothing. You know, you patch it up and and move on. Who were some of the most famous climbers or who were climbers that somebody else would know if they were into this world as well? Well, the first that jumps out is there's a guy named Jeff Lowe. And Jeff Lowe was in Colorado, and Jeff at the time was probably the most accomplished American climber in the world, both rock climbing. He was one of those guys, he was a golden guy. He was a wonderful guy. He was a good-looking blonde, shaggy hair, 
just good-natured, incredibly talented, all looked easy for him. So Jeff and I got to know each other just because I was climbing a lot around El Dorado Canyon, and in the winter for ice climbing, I would go down to Ure, Colorado. And so we were kind of crossing similar paths. So I had Jeff Flo there, Duncan Ferguson was another one who was very well known. Probably one of my favorites is a guy named Fred Becky. And Fred Becky, who passed away the last year, was known, I mean, their books have been written about Fred Becky entitled basically The Ultimate Dirtbagger. This, this was a guy <laughs> who climbed until he was in his 80s and basically lived in his car for the last 50 years, just going from climbing place to climbing place. Nobody knew much about him as for how he existed, and but he put up all kinds of first ascents in Rocky Mountain National Park, climbed all over the world. And so people like Fred Becky, there was Alex Lowe, no relation to Jeff Lowe, who unfortunately passed away in a uh, mountaineering accident in the Himalayas about five years ago. So guys like that, John Long, who has written many books, and if you recall the movie uh, Into Thin Air. I was going to ask about John Krakauer and some of that group yeah. because that ended up being made into a movie and right. is a really, really tragic event. And yeah, also, can you touch on just how much that shakes the rock climbing community when you see an accident happen like that? And did you ever have any run-ins with anybody that was on that uh, that expedition? Not on that expedition. I'm trying to think. I don't even know that. Well, I take that back. I may have seen a slideshow or two. I think Ed Vissiers was on that, and I met Ed a couple times. But it's funny you talk about John Krakauer. And when I first arrived at Yosemite, I met Crack, and Royal Robbins was still there, and John Long. And they were playing hacky sack in the parking lot. And, you know, at first, I didn't know who they were. And then when I heard it, it was like, holy shit, this is the Michael Jordans. Even though they were a bunch of young rock hippies, too, but they were the top of the food chain. Sure. And it's amazing seeing somebody, obviously, Krakauer is, is probably the prime example of the, I mean, we were teenagers, and now to see the prominence of these guys with their uh, journalistic and film and guiding and to the extent they've taken, it's pretty impressive. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Great book. Um, Great book. Man. So you're going to all these places. You're climbing all these places. <laughs> We're jumping around. You've been to Boulder. You were in Alaska, which I want to come back to. You mentioned Rocky Mountain National Park, Yosemite. You spent some time living in Yosemite, Seattle. I mean, is there anywhere that you hadn't been? At what age are we talking about, too, by the way? Well, it's interesting because there's a couple. I have trouble keeping track with it at times, too. But there were a couple of events that pinpoint in time. It's like, okay, I know it's here at this point. One of which was I remember when I was 18, I was in Boulder. I was back in Boulder because I had to find the post office because back then you had to register, sign up for the selective service, for the draft. Mm -hmm. There was no draft, but you still had to sign up. So I know I was 18 because I had to find the post office in Boulder. 
And then I remember I was back in, um, in the Seattle area. I went up to take a look at a college called Evergreen State University and decided the right time to do it was I went up there and checked it out. And then I'm like, okay, well, I want to go hiking around the area and check out some. I had not spent a lot of time in that part of the, the, the state. And so um, I kind of looked around and talked to a few people and decided a good place to go was this place called Mount St. Helens. (laughs) (laughs) And so I literally was about 14 miles away from Mount St. Helens when it erupted back in, I think it was 81. It was either 80 or 81. And I had just signed out a ranger station that was at a trailhead on a mountain kind of nearby called Mount Martha and uh, got about 100 yards heading for the trailhead from this cabin where the rangers were and this son of a bitch blows and I didn't know what it was. My first assumption was there are a lot of nuclear power plants up in Washington State. That was the only thing I could think of that went through my head that would make such a and then it started getting dark because the ash quickly blotted out the sun Mm. and within 30 seconds I couldn't see my hand in front of my face but I could hear the commotion I was still close enough to the ranger station I could hear the commotion inside the ranger station that I could make my way back to the cabin and they knew exactly what happened they were just having a conniption so um so anyway, so that took me, you know, that point in time, I know I was at this place at this point in time and, and this place at another point in time. So there's no internet at this time. You're only receiving news basically from what you see on the television or hear on the radio. It's just such a weird thing to think about where you could be in a place and have this conversation with somebody. I was there. I was there. I was there. And people are finding out not in the most immediate way. It's just, it's just I, my brain can't process what that would have been like to not receive that news instantly via Twitter or right. CNN update right. or something on your iPhone. It's yep. just you're running into people hours later and probably still have some ash on the face or something. You like, know what? what I, I, it's funny because years later, and I'm not exaggerating, years later, I would be like emptying out uh, or going somewhere and I'd use that backpack that I hear and I would still find remnants of ash in corners and pockets <laughs> or something like that. But it's interesting because eventually I got a ride with a state trooper back up to the interstate and went back up to Evergreen State University little school. I lived in their student union and lived off vending machines for a few days, <laughs> but they had a TV. And so that was how I, like you said, that was the source of information. There was no internet. Wow. No cell phone. Couldn't afford one if they did have one. <laughs> Absolutely wild. So Mount St. Helen erupts. Mm-hmm. You were there. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you're still going to these different places. So I'm just trying to make keep track of all Connect the different the places. Yeah, man. Yeah. So yeah. after that, can you keep going? I, I'm almost positive. I believe after St. Helens, I think that's when I went back to Boulder because it was later that I headed up to Alaska because, uh, again, I had gone down to, to Arizona. So I went back to Boulder and um, 
I was more or less going to resume doing what I was doing, living in my tent out in El Dorado Springs and continue to climb. You know, because you you also have to remember that when I arrived from climbing in uh, the Blue Ridge Parkway and climbing in El Dorado Canyon, it's like going from peewee football to Division One college. It, it's mm-hmm. it's the big time, and so I really spent that time. I needed to become and did become. I became a much better rock climber. I became a good rock climber. And so when my confidence level rose as well as my ability, then the Valhalla started to appear on the horizon. And and I mean the Valhalla, the nirvana in rock climbing in the United States is Yosemite Valley. Mm. The walls of Yosemite, the big walls, the half domes, the El Capitans, the multi-days, we were talking about the, the films that are out there. Alex Hanold has Free Solo mm. uh, that's been out, those routes. And so that's when I went back to Boulder, was there for a period of time, and then actually got a ride. Didn't have to hitchhike to Yosemite. <laughs> I think there were three of us, and somebody had a Volkswagen uh, bug that we piled in, and off to Yosemite I went. Which is one of the most beautiful places in the country. I absolutely love going there. When I was out there several months ago, I think I sent you some pictures yep. because I know we share that. And even right now, this this Yeti that my brother gave me has got Yosemite on there, man. It's one of my favorite places in the world, and especially just when you get to the valley and you're on the floor and you're just looking up. doesn't look just, real. I it mean, just looks sublime. It does not look real. Can't be real. God. And especially if you were there when the seasons changed and you got the beautiful leaves and just that scenery, being there in the fall, I mean, it's hard to beat it. It is, you know, but I didn't notice the leaves. I didn't notice. All I saw was rock. Rock. I mean, it was, as as a climber, it was just like, really, it just didn't look real. It was too good to be real. (laughs) You're, I'm looking at the bottoms of the trees going up. You're looking at the top of them like, oh, yeah, there they are. Yep. Yeah. Wow. So would you say that that's some of the most challenging rock climbing that you can pop? Maybe like somewhere like Argentina or Everest, but Yosemite's got to be up there in terms of most challenging climbs in a sense, right? As far as rock climbing. And the thing about rock climbing is, I mean, you can find world-class difficulty in the Red River Gorge in eastern Kentucky. But the thing about Yosemite is when we were doing the big walls, these were multi-day. We were on the walls for two and three days at a time living up there. I mean, it was like a a full military assault. I mean, we literally would carry haul bags behind us on a pulley system with our sleeping bags and water and food and So when you roll all that up into world-class difficulty and aesthetics, again, that's what makes it what it is. Where do you sleep? I mean, yeah, how? because I'm only picturing it from what I know from looking at something like Half Dome, where obviously you wouldn't sleep in your carabiner and set up like on the ropes or or would you sleep hanging like that? Well, you you never untie. Yeah, you are sleeping. You're not hanging in your uh, harness when you're sleeping, but you are attached. You're never unattached from your harness. On Half Dome, there are a series of very small ledges 
big enough, literally just enough for you to stretch out in a sleeping bag. And, you know, you can have your uh, one burner stove and you've got your protection, whether it's a piton hammered in or existing bolts that you're clipped into. But I've never known anybody that rolled off, so to speak, in their sleep, (laughs) but you slept in your harness in your sleeping bag. Now, on El Capitan, that was an altogether different scenario. And while there are a couple ledges, depending on the routes you take, several of the routes, including the one that Alex Hanel did, free soloed, the New Dawn Wall, we took what are called wall wombs, which are essentially a small tent platform, just enough to lay down, that you would hang off the side of the mountain, sleeping on this, like, cot that you can disassemble and... Again, we haul it up as we go. And so that's what you did. God, that is just, for anybody that considers themselves an adrenaline junkie or looking for that rush, you know, that has got to be just one of the most intense feelings in the world. And even just when you wake up, do you forget sometimes where you are? And no, do you just. No. And, and, you know, you use the word intense. I guess if somebody got in over their head, which happens all the time, but I mean, I was prepared for it and the the skill level I was at was appropriate to the climbs that I was trying to do. So no, uh, other than, I mean, you know, you climb that much, you're always going to have a mishap here or two. I had some interesting stories that could have gone very wrong that fortunately did not, but it wasn't so much an intensity because it was just euphoria. Yeah, you were just doing what you wanted to do, where you wanted to be doing it, and the views were just beyond belief and kumbaya. <laughs> How long did you end up staying in Yosemite? And by the way, now they make these meals, really gourmet meals that you can boil water and eat. What were you eating while you're on these trips? Well, on the climbs, we ate pretty good. I mean, we'd Again, we've got a pulley system. We probably had, and we're talking about two guys, you know, it was myself and one other climber. We probably had 40 pounds of food. It was almost ridiculous. I remember on uh, Half Dome, on one of the ledges halfway up, there was enough room for another climbing party, and there was a group of uh, Asian climbers. And They were decent climbers, but they were completely unprepared. It's like they had one can of pork and beans for three people and one small flask of water. And (laughs) we're up there kind of looking at them. And there was only one of them that could speak broken English. But, you know, we were brothers in arms up there. And we started hauling cans of of, um, fruit cocktail and stuff, just giving them to them and (laughs) handing them a gallon of water. And they're looking at us like we're crazy for, you know. So, no, we we did not want for anything. And even when I was living day to day as a climbing bum, I was never hungry. You know, I left Kentucky with $800 and that $800 lasted me a year. Wow. And was happy as a clam. Which is just, to me, the epitome of cool. I've got what I own on my back. I've got a little bit of money in my pocket. I don't know where the hell my journey is headed, but I know it's better than what I'm leaving behind, and I know that I'm going to figure it out. And I think that trait of an entrepreneur as a human being, just the ability to not really want or need for much and be able to 
do even just the basic things that you might see on Survivor, like starting a fire or how to build a shelter or take it to an extreme where you're sleeping in these setups on right. the side of a mountain. To do that just takes so much courage and just such an unwavering belief in yourself and really just a self-determination that like Ralph Waldo Emerson and shit would be proud of. I mean, this is just like I'm getting to talk to my version, the coolest version of the John Krakowers or of Chris McCandless who went out to Alaska. So yeah, I want to yeah. bring that back in. What was it like living in Alaska? Because really the only understanding that I have from it is from reading his book, Into the Wild. Yep. So yep. how long were you in Alaska? I was in Alaska for about eight months. <laughs> I started out getting deported from Canada trying to get up there. <laughs> I uh, there's a, uh, a town called Anacortes, just north of Seattle, which is the ferry port terminal that runs up to Prince Rupert and, and up to Alaska. So I pay my $11 or whatever it was, and I get on the ferry and go up there, and all the business guys and whatnot are doing their commute. And here I am, a little bit of long hair, a little bit of hippie dirtbag <laughs> thing going on. And the customs guy stops me, this kind of nerdy guy who just didn't have a clue about the outdoors and he wouldn't let me in he's like how much money do you have and, and I had a few bucks in my pocket but he's like you don't have enough money he said you're gonna become a vague because I told him I'm gonna hitchhike the Alcan highway up to Anchorage and he goes you won't make it you'll end up being a vagrant in Canada because you don't have enough money so you can't stay and so they put me back on the return shuttle and sent me back. So I had to sneak into um, Canada, but eventually made it up to the uh, Kenai Peninsula. Um, How do you sneak past the Canadian border? Well, I say sneak past. When I got back, I hitchhiked up to a different part of the border and walked in versus getting off the, you know, I just got the wrong guy on the wrong day. And they're sitting there waiting for you, too, right, when you're getting off of that Right, okay. right. And again, you know, there, there was enough normal people, guy, people that weren't in shredded blue jeans or whatever, that I kind of <laughs> stood out. But I remember walking into Canada up to the customs, and they were very cool about it, and no problem, and away I went. And then um, hitchhiked up the Alcan. I needed some money at that point. Got a job in a um, fish cannery a salmon processing cannery down on the Kenai Peninsula and was there for about a month. And then I was going to go up to uh, Talkeetna, Alaska, which is where I ended up living for about six months. Talkeetna is essentially the getting on port, the transport location for climbers flying into Mount McKinley to the base camps because mm. I, I wanted to go up and climb McKinley. So I uh, left the cannery job and told the guys what I was going to do. And the old timers like, no, you're not. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? And I said, you're not, you're not leaving yet. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, you have been handling salmon guts for the last month. Your skin is so impregnated with fish oil. If you go into the backcountry right now, you might as well put appetizer on your forehead to the bears. Oh, shit. And they're like, you need to go home and you need to wash your hands in tomato juice for the next week and then at least give it a week or so. 
So I learned that lesson, eventually made it up to Talkeetna and went in and, and uh, got on McKinley several times and then actually ended up working for a really neat woman. There was a lady named Kitty Banner who was a very attractive, very Alaskan woman. She had been a bush pilot, and she started a, uh, an outfit called K2 Aviation that all they did was fly climbers in and out of base camp. And so after I'd become familiar with McKinley a good bit, I ended up working for K2 as a guide. Started out packing planes and just doing stuff like that, but ended up guiding for a little while there. And Alaska was awesome. The problem is that once winter hits, it's pretty brutal. You don't do a lot of mountain climbing in Alaska. Um, I had become very intrigued with ice climbing uh, as opposed to rock climbing and even mountaineering at that point. So I kind of set my sights at some locales that were more specialized toward ice climbing. Uh, and that was kind of my experience in Alaska. Did you ever see the Northern Lights? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On my bucket list. I have to do that. I want to see them yeah. somewhere where the visibility is best. Right. I don't know if that's Alaska or other parts of the world. There may be better spaces, but Alaska is, I know, among one of the best places for that. And just to see a naturally occurring phenomenon like that is just, I got to imagine it's mind-blowing. It is. It's just such kind of a spooky, it's like all of a sudden it's like, holy crap. But Minnesota, Wisconsin, anywhere way up north where, like you say, you don't have lights and uh, obstructions and so forth, yeah, you'll often get that show. So then after Alaska, what point did you come back into the main part of the United States and getting back through Canada? Well, I hitchhiked back down the Alcan. You know, I had said earlier that I had no problems throughout the course of all this adventure hitchhiking around. That was an exception because... It never really occurred to me that it might be difficult to find somebody that would be okay taking a hitchhiker across through customs. So I got about 75, 80 miles from the border, and I was there for about three days. I couldn't get anybody to give me a ride. Finally, this guy picks me up. There's a, a naval base on Whidbey Island uh, just outside Seattle. This guy had been on leave to see a girlfriend or something like that in Canada and sure get in. And the big adventure there was I mean, he was a nice guy and from what I remember. And uh, as we're literally 100 yards from the customs and slowing down, he looks at me and he says, now are you cool? Uh, yeah. And I knew exactly what he meant. Are you carrying anything you need to worry about going through? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, are you cool? Just relax. This chucklehead had half an ounce of cocaine in the dashboard, somewhere stashed in the dashboard of this car. Didn't tell me about it until afterwards. And all I could think of is trying to convince these guys as I'm in handcuffs that this guy just picked me up. You know, but uneventful. We went through, nobody raised an eyebrow. They didn't find a thing, and off we went. And back in the United States, I am. So, um, 
And I'm, I'm trying to think, because we got kind of out of order. I had gone down to Phoenix prior to going to Alaska. So um, when I got back in the U.S., I went back to Yosemite and then kind of reversed courses, went back to Yosemite, but then ended up down in Ure, Colorado, because I really was looking for ice climbing. That's That's a whole different world. It's just like you're looking for that next level of difficulty at that point. Uh, I guess, yeah. I just love the medium. I, it was just a really cool thing. And uh, I don't know whether it was so much about the difficulty, just another environment that just got the juices flowing in. And to this day, that's still, I still ice climb and it's still what I'm most passionate about as far as the climbing world. Where do you go now? <laughs> Nowhere close. <laughs> that's the only downside to Louisville, Kentucky. Ure yeah. um, still has what's called the Ure Ice Park. About 15 years ago, they figured out that the climbing was such a draw that they rigged a canyon with water lines at the top coming out of the city water lines that drip water that formed this series of large ice waterfalls, about two, 300 meters in height. So there's a lot of climbing there. I ended up climbing a lot up in the, uh, western Canada, Banff. Lake Louise, mm. the Icefields Parkway is kind of the, that's kind of the Yosemite of ice climbing in North America. There's some really neat areas you wouldn't think about it, but like northern Ontario, uh, up the northern end of Lake Superior, there's some drainages up there that create some really good ice climbing. And believe it or not, there is ice climbing in the Red River Gorge at times. And there's actually been a couple of stories, I think, in Climbing Magazine where there are little pockets that if you hit the right temperatures, the right amount of moisture, there is decent ice climbing in the Red River Gorge, but that's a rarity. Usually you're driving a long ways. What's your favorite out of all the places that you've been? Can you think of one that is just head and shoulders above the rest? come back to Yosemite. And I've always said, I've been asked that question a lot over the years. And there's two places that from a climber's perspective, which is where my head completely existed for all those years and probably still does. There's two places that when I first saw my jaw hit the floor and one of them was Yosemite and the other was the Canadian Rockies. I was down in South America a little bit in the Andes, climbing down there, and the size of everything down there is remarkable. But again, I still come back to those two places. The story, your story is like a fine wine. It just keeps on getting better with time. <laughs> you can't make this shit up, as they say, right? No, no, absolutely not. Because yeah. then it's just like, oh, yeah, slip this in. Oh, by the way, South America, it's just like there's so much to get to. Do you think that... When you see people who are in these rock climbing, I don't even know if there's a league or how it's done, but there are professionals. There are sponsorships that are sure. done. Did you ever see guys that were starting to get into the corporate side of it where they were starting to get? Oh, big time. Okay. Big time. The first, I mean, the most obvious is, believe it or not, I met Yvonne Chouinard couple times, which that name may not be familiar to a lot of people. Chenard was the guy who started Patagonia, and he was a Yosemite rock climber that lived in California and realized that as the climbing was getting more popular 
and out of necessity, he started making some of his own climbing gear and started a company called the Great Pacific Iron Works. And the first pitons that, you know, you hammer on the rocket were he cut them off a pot-bellied stove and hammered. And so he would be certainly the most successful. But Ben, like with any sport, you had your Jeff Lowe's and your Duncan Ferguson's, the top of the food chain. Like with any sport, you had those guys that, yes, corporate was starting to pay for some of their trips and provide them with equipment. But then there was the rest of us that were damn good climbers, but were not at that level or certainly didn't have that level of notoriety. My existence, for the most part, was... When I first got to Yosemite, you could still get 25 cents for a glass Coke bottle and <laughs> a nickel for an aluminum. So we'd go trash can diving and, you know, you'd come up with five, six, seven bucks and that was your food money for the week. Wow. But as far as the ability to transition, you know, I started guiding professionally as a way to make money and, and survive and be able to continue to do it. Worked at a couple of climbing stores and things like that along the way. But the uh, fame and fortune never graced my door. Because <laughs> that's where I was headed, which is as an entrepreneur, you're trying to figure out how you can either eliminate your costs or make money to continue to support this lifestyle. Right. The way that you're describing it, you really don't need a lot of money, but just even a little bit of scratch to get you right. by in tough right. situations, you're finding ways to do that, whereas somebody else might have gotten a sponsorship or something like that, but you're figuring out how can I continue to do this and self-fund it, which is exactly. really, exactly. really cool. Yeah, you know, you, you, do, you do what you can. You, you know, uh, I was fortunate every once in a while I'd get a guiding gig. Which, you know, that was big money. If I could make 50 bucks in a day, that was uh, a good thing. But uh, back then there were generic food aisles, and uh, that got real popular for a long time where you could just buy cheap generic food, you know, peanut butter and ramen noodles. And <laughs> again, like you said, the overhead was so low. Yeah. Um, didn't have a car, didn't have rent. The thought of health insurance never even crossed my mind. <laughs> I still don't have it, so... Yeah, you know. so, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how long did you do that for? Because at some point, you eventually come back to Kentucky. Right. You end up meeting Kathy, your wife now, having two beautiful boys, raising a couple of dogs. But how long did it take until you were ready to finally settle down? I mean, at what point did you start to transition from that lifestyle into where it headed once you right. got to Kentucky? When I came back from Alaska and was back in Boulder and was climbing, and I was having a good time, but it was kind of like the hamster on the wheel. I was kind of doing the same routine over and over. And, you know, not surprising, at some point, it's kind of like, as you said, it's kind of like, okay, what am I going to do? What's the future going to hold for me? And Part of it, too, I remember thinking, you know, not a whole lot of women are going to be attracted to a guy living such a transient lifestyle. <laughs> and so that was part of the motivation, too. So I had been gone, let's see, I had been gone about five and a half to six years and decided to move back to Louisville. Didn't have a clue what I was going to do. How old are you at this time? I'm 22. I'm 22. <laughs> 
so I come back to Louisville, <laughs> and I remember got back, and my dad picks me up, and he's like, "We got to get your haircut. <laughs> I can't. We got to get your haircut." And uh, the old barber shop in the mall in St. Matthews was the only place open or the closest. And I just remember this old, stodgy old barber just kind of looked at me like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? And so it got cleaned up, and my dad was still a single divorce guy. And living about 500 feet from where we're doing this very interview this morning— and so uh, he had a spare bedroom. And again, we all know as we get older how profound certain moments in our life or events in our life are. We don't know it at the time, but just how it can shape and direct when we're not even looking for it. And my father and I were at Captain's Quarters Restaurant and happened to run into a neighbor of my father's, lived down the courtyard from him. Didn't know him well, but introduced me and this guy had been very successful as a region manager with one of the medical device companies. So just polite conversation. We're meeting each other, and this is my wife. And so what do you do, Brad? And told him kind of a brief story and of where I had gone and what I had done. And, and he said, do you—I said, I'm looking for a career. I'm looking for a job, anything. He says, well, do you know anything about medical and I said, well, the only thing I know about medical is by virtue of the level I was climbing at when I was like up in Alaska and so forth, I had to become an EMT, a medical tech. Hmm. It was required for senior guides and so forth. So I could speak the language. I didn't have much in the way of education, but I had gotten my EMT advanced first aid and yada, yada. He goes, I've done really well with this company in medical and so well that I decided to start along with a couple partners, this little medical business on the side. And it's going okay, but I realize that I just really don't have the time to devote to it. It's selling medical devices to surgeons. And he said, is it something you think you might want to try? Man, I'm like, wow. I mean, that's a big step up from getting tin cans out of the uh, California trash cans. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I bought a couple books and read up on it and got next to no help from him. He was out making his good money in his real job. So it was like, here it is. Here's what it's supposed to do. Here's the brochure. Now go sell it. And I did. And my wife coined a phrase later on that I think kind of probably sums it up regarding my success in doing that, being so unprepared. She said, you had a whole lot of guts or the stupidity not to know any better. And I know that's <laughs> what it was. I mean, I didn't know that you weren't just supposed to walk up to the lead surgeon at Jewish hospital that make appointments and go through purchasing departments. And I'd just go knock on these guys' doors or I'd just walk up to them. Yeah. And I think that the reason they didn't just kick me to the curb was I think I was so naive. It was obvious that I wasn't playing them. I was being sincere. One thing led to another, and that went pretty good. And I ended up becoming the sales manager for this small company that ended up being bought by a much larger company. <laughs> the main device that we were selling was made by a company up in New Jersey. And it was a typical scenario of a very, very brilliant technical lab guy 
coming up with some very, very good surgical products and not knowing that he was a lab guy and not a businessman. So while the company did well, and they actually ended up going public, they became a publicly traded company on the stock exchange. Wow. This guy was not smart enough to realize I got to get business people in to adequately run the business of this entity. And sell it. And sell it. So what they did was they went around the country to build up a quick distribution and sales network. Again, they had gone public. So they went around to all these small companies like the one I had worked for that we were a distributor of their product and they said, we want to buy you guys to the guy I was working for. Mm-hmm. Said, we want to buy you guys and we'll pay you a little cash, but we're going to give you stock options in this publicly traded company. So you have the potential. These guys were seeing big dollar signs. They talked with me and said, we certainly want you to continue. You're a big part of the success of this office. And so we, you'll just be working for us. We'll give you a little stock here and there. You'll work for us instead of the fellow that started the little office. And so most everybody, all the entities, the little companies around the country, all jumped on this bandwagon and sold. And it um, was selling a similar product. We had we probably had about ten, twenty thousand dollars worth of inventory that we kept at the local office, and uh, sales were good. I was happier than a pig, and you know what? I mean, I'd never made more than four fifty an hour in my life, and I was making really good money. Were you on a base salary and a commission, or just straight commission? commission. Only? It was wow. straight commission. Wow. And Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross over here, yeah, man, just ripping. Straight commission. So after a few months, my commission check was late. I called him up. Oh, we're sorry. A little bit of an accounting snafu. We'll get it taken care of. A few weeks later, call him up. Same thing. This went on for about two and a half months. They owed me about $8,000. I remember that. And again, we're talking about 1983, maybe, 84. I had met my wife. She was my sister's roommate at Arizona State University. So when I had gone down to Arizona to visit my mom prior to going to Alaska, I just happened to meet Kathy, who was just happened to be at my mother's apartment when I was there. And there was an attraction. There was a spark, but nothing more. And I was on my way to Alaska, and she was partying at Arizona State. And mm-hmm. that was kind of that was it. She's from northern Kentucky. So Kathy and I stayed in touch. We... Uh, Believe it or not, about, I don't know, a year and a half later, got engaged. She came home for Christmas when I was living back here, and we went out, and seven days later, we're engaged. <laughs> she goes back to Arizona State to finish that semester, moves back. So she comes from the party and lifestyle of Arizona State and moves into my little condo in Yuppie Land. So she gets up in the morning drinking a beer, and I put on my coat and tie and grab my suitcase or uh, or my briefcase, and out the door I go. So I'm working for this company that starts owing me this money. And at some point, I'm like, guys, I'm done. You know, until you pay me the, again, about eight grand that you owe me, which was a hell of a lot of money, Sure. you know, I'm done. So about that time, this is a great story. It's gone, It's a little long-winded, but it's a cool story. No, that's what we're here for. So about that time at the office, this 
UPS delivers about 10 boxes. And everybody's kind of like, anybody order 10? No. And we open them up, and it's a bunch of the medical devices that were addressed to the old company that this company had bought, our old little office, and an invoice for like $60,000 in there. Call them up. They're like, it was an error. We'll take care of it. Through the grapevine, we come to find out that similar shipment had showed up at virtually all of the little offices that they had bought around the country. These guys, in their infinite wisdom, decided, again, this is a publicly traded company, so they got to report their sales numbers every quarter, which then, of course, goes to the auditor and then goes to the Security Exchange Commission, And, of course, that's what, as we all know, drives stock prices. Good numbers, bad numbers. These guys, to cook the books, they had sent these shipments to all these entities around the country so that they could show them as sales on their books for that quarter to bump the stock price. They had also, they found out that there were about six semi-tractor trailer in the parking lot full of inventory that they showed as ship. So they had cooked about several million dollars in sales. Oh, God. The stock goes up. People are selling. people, And then the shit hits the fan because it didn't take the SEC terribly long to see something not right. Actually, I think it was the auditors. The auditing firm said something's not right, and they were obligated to inform the SEC. So at 22, 23 years old with my 19-year-old wife sitting in her condo, the phone rings. And it's the, uh, I forget, it was either the SEC or the FBI. And they're like, here's what's going on. And, you know, we had caught wind of the scheme, if you will. Mm -hmm. And they called me up and they're like, we are calling to corroborate what you know and what your involvement is. And I told them, I was completely honest, and they're like, okay, you know, if we need any other information from you, blah, 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 we'll call you. About that time, the, again, I'm 22 years old, first real job, the CEO of this publicly traded company calls me. This was probably within a couple days of the authorities having called me and said, look, let's make this a win-win scenario. He's on the run. And the FBI is trying to track him down. And he's like, this is what happened, right? And he's basically feeding me the story. And he goes, you back me up and I'll make you a wealthy man. And Kathy's leaning into the phone listening to this just (laughs) with her. her, She just like can't believe it. I mean, it was like something out of a a soap opera. And I'm like, you're out of your friggin' mind. That was the end of that conversation. And so... It kind of left me in the situation of what do I do now? I've got this little career that was going pretty well, calling on the hospitals. Now I don't, it's all busting apart, and these guys owe me money. So I thought about it. There's all that $60,000 worth of inventory that was delivered. Well, I decided to take it hostage. Hmm. And that's how I started Base Medical Corporation was – I contacted the hospitals that I was calling on, and they were aware that something wasn't right, you know, in the med- not just with me and this little, but na- nationally, you know, it had made the news. 
And I approached him and I said, if you don't want to have anything further to do with me because of the guilt by association, I understand, but I'm just a tiny little cog in this whole wheel. And it was so obvious. I mean, Brad Steinfeld in Louisville, Kentucky, I'm not in the thick of this. I said, I've got inventory. Didn't tell him how I got it, but <laughs> I've got the inventory. Yeah, it's sitting right I'm there. St- I'm starting my own company. Literally in the second bedroom of that little condo, you know, I would sell during the day and type in voices at night. Some of them said, nah, we're going to go another way. But most of them continue to do business with me. And that's how I started my company. Damn. Strange but true. How much did the guy offer you for the your compliance, I guess, with his story that he was trying to corroborate? I don't remember that there was a dollar figure tossed out. It was more or less, I've got lots of stock. I've got lots of money. And the people that take care of me will be well taken care of. It was kind of one of those type conversations. But you got to be thinking, dude, if this stock goes to zero or goes bust, then what is that worth? It wasn't even that, because at that point, I was looking to distance myself from them. I wasn't interested in their money, in their stock. They were a very tainted entity. It was The writing was on the wall at that point, and they ended up chasing that guy. He left the country. He was in South America, I think. <laughs> for months and months before he finally, uh, I don't know whether he got extradited back to the U.S. or finally came back, but no, I was ready to wash my hands of them. And aside from their products, I then reached out to both competitive products, competitors, as well as product lines that augmented what I had been doing to see, hey, I'm starting this company. Can I handle your product line? And, you know, some said yes, some said no. All right, just a couple of quick mid-roll announcements. Please, if you're enjoying this episode, take a second to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you may be listening. If you're like, hey, Benny T, I'm listening on Google Podcasts or on SoundCloud or on Stitcher or on Anchor FM or any of the other places that aren't Apple Podcasts or Spotify, then you can also help me out by dropping a quick rating and a review on the Facebook page at Real Talk W Benny T or following along any of the other social media channels at Benny Tomp 18 or at Real Talk W Benny T. Go and check out the website that just launched last week that I'm very, very excited about, iridewithbittyt.com. Are you sensing a trend here? Are you sensing a pattern, right? Ride with me for the rest of this journey, my friends, and continue to come back for excellent guests and excellent episodes that we've got coming up the rest of this year. It's going to be a big year. Big year, boys, a lot of pressure, you know, but hey, we're doing the damn thing, baby, so come and follow along as I document what I'm becoming. All right. Without further ado, we're getting back into this interview with Brad Steinfeld. So we're picking back up now, and we're still focusing on where we're at with you and your budding career Mm -hmm. that's finally starting to lead to some real money coming in. We skipped over. You mentioned that when you came back to live here in Louisville, you mentioned that your dad was single at the time. So What happened there? Because they were together when you left, right? They were together when I left. And unfortunately, while I was gone, she decided to uh, see someone else. So, I mean, it was just the typical, she had an affair and got caught. And that was the end of that. And she was the main reason that you ended up leaving 
So when she was gone, what was the relationship like with your dad? Was it easier with her out of the picture or had damage been done that was maybe not reconcilable? Uh, You know, there was definitely damage that had been done. And I carried some, most definitely, I carried some resentment and still do to a certain extent that he did not have my back throughout all that. But there again, you know, I don't I don't know whether it's that I'm just such an independent person or just I don't know, but I was more focused on just dusting yourself off and moving forward than I was harboring resentment. We didn't have a good relationship or a bad relationship. You know, we weren't close. And uh, unfortunately, that really never changed. There was always a little bit of a distance. But there, as you know, there's very few children that have the relationship that they envision that they want and should have with their parents. Sure. Uh, and so this was, was no different. So We share that parallel as well. Definitely a strain and some friction in my relationship with my dad. And it's probably one of the... I look at you not only as just a father figure, but as a friend as well. And I think that's changed since I started to get older. And then we just realized that we've got all these connections. And just I look at you more as a friend, but I've always looked at you as one of these. I've had to fill my father figure with composites of, Mm -hmm. you know, when I think of that person, it's it's you, it's Tim O'Neill, it's it's all these, it's Coach Leach, it's all these different guys that each kind of played a part in in raising me. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you was, do you think that if that relationship had been fine, you maybe wouldn't have been so encouraged or just at peace with leaving the nest, getting out there on your own and going to try these things? Because even as we've gone along through all these different stories, that scramble is still not there. Even when this guy is on the fucking run and he's like, hey, right. what are you thinking? You're like, no, it's okay. But still a calmness in that you're like, you know what? I'm going to figure it out. But do you think that taking those leaps was like how big of a role do you think that that played a part in it? Because I know just for me, it's been easy to go out of Kentucky because mm-hmm. it's not like I'm waiting on this big really loving family here you know it's it's kind of easy to move on and and i think you kind of summed up what went through my mind when you brought up that thought pattern and that was that at the point that i left home and the relationship issues with my father and so forth you know i think what made it easier to leave and more motivated to toward independence was i wasn't getting what i needed or wanted where i was and so you either stay there and put up with it or which, you know, I guess a lot of people, you know, where I got the independence to go ahead and make that leap, I can't tell you where that came from. But I just know that it was more uh, what I want and need isn't here. So I got to go find out where it is. The essential tools of any entrepreneur or young business person. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And not being fearful of failure. I don't ever remember feeling a sense that failure was going to kill me. It may hurt me. It may make me uh, look like a dumbass, but it's not going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. 
So at what point do you now transition from, because we're still only, we were joking that normal people, you might be able to sum up in an hour. And I said, we could give you a 10 part (laughs) series on this because I think even as this business is collapsing and you're talking about starting this other business, your business, you're still what, like 23? 23. Yeah. Yeah. You meet Kathy, you guys are engaged seven days after, uh, Mm -hmm. that's fast. And then at what point do you settle into the business that you were building and eventually kids come later, but even at 23 years old, I mean, how much time elapsed between you starting that business, getting married to Kathy, and then eventually having kids later? So at 23, getting married, have a wife, we're living in the little condo, and the business is doing well. Kathy's finishing, she still had a year of school to go, so she finished up at L. And as the business grew, she came to work for the company. And so she was the administrative think tank part of the Mm -hmm. the company. And then uh, I'm trying to think how many years later. It It wasn't but a couple years later that we had our first son, Max, that you know extremely well. And... It was really neat because we had gotten, we had, the office was um, at that time in a a little old house over in St. Matthews, and Max would go to the office with us, and we had an empty office set up as a nursery, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons he is such a comfortable person with people is that from the time he could toddle around, he was out waiting for the mailman and the UPS guy and mm-hmm. everybody in the office and so forth. And yeah, so the business uh, started growing. And and really, that's where I took on a, for many years, I took on you know a traditional businessman's role. I was, uh, there were times I worked for myself as well as for other companies and was doing the on the road. I remember when uh, when we were trying to get pregnant, I'd open up my day timer, my appointment book, it was the Bible back then. And Kathy had marked her ovulation days, you know, when I had to be when I had to be back in Louisville. Bring your A game. Bring your A game. And uh, yeah. And so then basically that's when we had kids. Max and Will. Yeah. Two years apart, I graduated with Max, and then Will graduated, same age as my brother, I think. I believe, yep. Yeah, yep. and uh, that's initially where we eventually get connected, is through Max. That's right, because, you know, one of the, again, those profound moments in one's life, you know, one of the other really profound, positive things that happened to me was... When Kathy and I realized we needed a little more space, and uh, we moved out to Skylight, Kentucky, hmm. which my family thought we were out of our friggin' minds. You know, it was the middle of the country, and it was the country back then, but we moved to the country, and it was the best thing I ever did for a lot of reasons. One that has always jumped out at me over the years is it got us away from trying to keep up with the Joneses, you know, being in the neighborhoods where it's like, okay, uh, he got a new car or, you know, whose house is the prettiest or the biggest. And, you know, it just wasn't happening out in Skylight, Kentucky. 
And then on top of that, the kids were going to this little bitty country school called Liberty Elementary School hey. that turned out to be probably the best thing that ever happened to my kids. Great country school. All the teachers knew the kids' names. The kids wanted to be there. You were there with rich kids, poor kids, you know, uh, of all nationalities. So you, it just was a very healthy place for us and always has been. Right up the road, the Liberty Bulldogs and just even coming out to your house now, still pass it. I was a Goshen Gator, but eventually when we were in high school, I think junior year was really when Max and I connected sitting at this lunch table and just athletes in there around the same people. But man, just the way that he carries himself and the work ethic that he's got. I wonder where he gets it from, right? Definitely some of you and Kathy rubbing off on him and and Will too. But um, there's a lot of people that shy away from hard work. There's a lot of people that... They just don't really have, they want to believe that they have what it takes to stay in there, stay in that pocket and just really just grind. I've never met many people that exemplify that more than Max. And it's a credit to the way that you guys raised him and how he grew up. But getting to live with him my junior and senior year when we were in school at Kentucky Mm -hmm. and there would be workaholic Wednesdays where We were both up early. I had really early journalism classes. We were broadcasting at like 6 or 7 in the morning. So I'd be on campus almost all day, would get done tutoring student-athletes around 7 p.m., get back, and it was just the highlight of my week right there. You just have to go as hard as you fucking can on hump day. We would always have workaholic Wednesdays waiting there for me when I got home. But no one else could really relate to that level that we were putting in on campus because he's one of the most studious people that I know is enjoying success in his career as is Will. But there just weren't many people on campus that I was spending time with like Max, certainly in some capacities. But just to be in those trenches side by side with him and even going back as far as winning the state championship when we were at North Oldham High School for track. Right. And just the process of getting him to come out for the team and and then just... Tube socks and all. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, man. Just old school huffing it out here, you know? And uh, that guy is somebody that will die on a basketball court or the office floor. And I just, I love him for that. I love you guys for that. But I was very, very humbled to have been the best man at his wedding very disappointed in you guys that you didn't have like a video service to capture my best man speech. I am very upset about that. It was a very but, good but, one. But you did be able to catch some footage of me on the dance floor, though, <laughs> yeah, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll remain in a vault somewhere. Yeah, I think that's what they call uh, traumatic memories or something. No, just yeah. kidding. <laughs> you know, as far as the kids go, I mean, I got to do say this. And, and thank you for the kind words regarding Max and Will. And I agree. You know, it's the old analogy where you want your kids to be better versions of yourself. And I think that's the thing that Kathy and I just are amazed with because our kids have their faults. But when we look, they truly have. It certainly looks like they have taken what we've taught them 
and taken their observations of us and learned a lot from the how not to do things, you know, looking at our less uh, quality uh, attributes, but building on the good stuff. And so they've taken and learned both sides of that to evolve into some people we're really, really proud of that I believe are good people and they never cease to amaze us. <laughs> never cease to amaze us. Well, thanks for putting them out there. I appreciate you yeah, doing that. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. I'm glad the A game was working. <laughs> That's right. The That's right. <laughs> the, the strong swimmers were working that day. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, how long did it take you before you finally were ready to retire? Because you've since moved out of the sale. You're still an entrepreneur. You're still launching music initiatives and the Back Porch Concert Series, and you're still scratching that itch. But what I love about you, too, is that a year ago in January of 2020 or 2021, 2021, yeah, uh, there was like a day where you were just chopping wood. And you're like, yeah, I've got a couple hours here. Why don't you give this thing? And I'm like, sure, you know, why not? So we just stood around and did that, too. But at what point did you transition out of business full-time and then starting to get into being a dad mm-hmm. and focusing on growing a family. You know, the, the quote retirement, and you can't, I don't really want to call it retirement. I, I guess it'd be a change of pace. It took place pretty early for me. I quote retired about 10 years ago. And I remember, you know, I, I had the opportunity to do it with the, the business had been sold and I actually had messed around in the commercial printing business for a while, which I really enjoyed. And then it was like, okay, what do I want to do now? And I remember Warren Buffett is talking about how he wanted to leave his children financially. And and he used a a really, really neat coin the the phrase of, he says, I want my kids to have enough money uh, to do anything they want, but not enough money to do nothing. And so that's kind of the position I found myself in. It wasn't like I had FU money and could just go sail off in the Caribbean and wouldn't want to do that. But what it did is it gave me the ability to do what I wanted and do what I enjoyed, whether it was chopping wood or other business side companies that I've started and and so forth, or going mountain climbing or starting to produce music events which is, as you know, that's a, a real big focal point of what I've been doing the last couple of years. And that simply came about about five years ago. Uh, you know, I, I use the term, I took my head out of the classic rock cloud. <laughs> Music's always been really important to me, a big part of my life and so forth, just as a somebody who like music. I'm not a musician or anything like that. But I started going to a lot of music, a lot of local music and was really impressed with how good it was and just got to know a couple people in the business and the music management business i got to know quite a few of the bands as friends where you know i could really we could talk about the the music business Mm -hmm. and i realized early on that one of the things that's really sad particularly right now is it is brutal trying to make a living in the music business, no matter how good you are, unless you're a Robert Plant or a a Jay-Z or, you know, unless you're at the top of the game, um, it's really, really tough. So 
in talking to a bunch of these bands and people that wanted to play somewhere, I became aware kind of of how tough it is in the venue business. In other words, whether you're going to a nightclub or a Zanzibar or so, you know, it's a business. And these musicians are just not making any money. And I'm like, well, you want a place to play? I got a backyard. And again, I guess this kind of comes back to my, from day one of going out to mountain climb. It's like, where is it in the rule book that says I can't put on rock concerts in my backyard? Yep. So we, uh, we pull a 30 foot hay wagon up 90 degrees to my back porch, take the railing off. I went out and bought a used professional sound system and a used professional lighting system and started having bands in. We're going into our fourth year. We get a good crowd out. We get great music. And throughout all this, it just, again, I look at the amount of talent regionally. It's just absolutely mind-blowing between what comes out of Appalachia Mm-hmm. We're close to Nashville, we're close to Indianapolis, St. Louis, Chicago, and you throw all that in, and it is just remarkable. So aside from bands coming and going from the four castles and Louder Than Life's that we kind of can tag into, mm-hmm. the local bands come out, and we have a hell of a good time, and it's open to the public, and it's free. We pass the hat. It's there to support the musicians, and I've always said the community gets together. I get to listen to phenomenal music on my back porch with some great people. Mm. The bands get paid. That's a win-win-win, and we love it and hope to keep doing it for a while. It's just such a cool thing to me. I mean, there's just goals. That's all I have to say is just goals because as somebody who also just shares that appreciation for live music and creating that experience for people and creating that place for somebody to come and really just let loose a little bit or just feel comfortable. You talked about community and just you have built your own tribe and I've been able to. You said you've been doing it about four years. I moved back to Kentucky about mid-2018. I can't remember if I was at the inaugural back porch It was one of the early series, ones, yeah. But yeah, man. And and even throughout the seasons, I've been able mm-hmm. to come when I've been in town and can get out there, and they are very cool. It is really, really cool. I mean, you talked about moving out to Skylight and having the ability, you know, just to have some space and have those kind of events in your own backyard where you're hosting them. And again, too, it ties into the entrepreneurship thing because... right. How do you get to become the Jay-Z's or the Robert Plants? The road to that is so, it's it's designed to weed the people out, but it also, it filters so many people and keeps them also from, from really reaching those levels. And you're creating a space for people to come and bridge that gap and giving them a place to play and stay, I'm sure, if they needed mm-hmm. to stay. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. It's just one of the coolest things that I think anybody has maybe ever done. I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I think this whole entrepreneurship thing and the climbing and doing this and that, I think just a lot of it has to do with fear of the unknown stymies the majority of people for understandable reasons. But once you realize that fear of the unknown, it's not going to kill you. 
And uh, you may fall on your face, and it may be awkward at times, but the reward that comes with it of stepping up to the plate, it's like, how could you not? Right. And you've created a life that is authentically your own. A path. That is true. My, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife would agree with that. A path that's uniquely your own, and now you're like, dude, I get to do what I want to do. Like I lived like no one else before so that now I can live like no one else now. Kind of that Dave Ramsey paradigm, right? But right, just right. it's a very, very cool thing. And as we're sitting here about to wrap up some final thoughts on yeah, all of this. We, I mean, we could, we could absolutely go for another hour. Oh, I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we could go with the R-rated version next time and uh, and get into some interesting. things. Yeah, don't don't you go holding back on any yeah. of these details. Yeah. Now. You know, real quick, honestly, you know, kind of going uh, in reverse. One of the reasons I left Boulder, Colorado, was the cocaine revolution hit, and. At that point, of course, everybody out in Colorado was smoking weed and just the normal, you know, typical recreation, this and that. And, and then all of a sudden, cocaine hit in the, in the early 80s, and I left. You know, it was one of those things where some little voice inside me said, this is, you're going to get into trouble. And off we went. So, uh, But make no mistake, and this is a plug to my wife— the ability for me to do what I've done and enjoy, you know, I'm surrounded by some really, really good supportive people, first and foremost, Kathy and the kids. One of the fears, and I still have this fear, is that they see me having taken such a, an eclectic, off-the-wall path and it's not for everybody. And it's, you know, it's like retiring early. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't see the 18-hour days for years and years and years, you know, when I was out pounding the pavement. So there's a little bit of concern there that, uh, you know, and, and your comment about their work ethic warms my heart because I was fearful that they, well, I want to do what my dad did. And it's like, well, that's fine, but let's think through the realities of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Do you worry now that if they're going to blink, that their life is going to pass them by because they're so committed to their work? Max and I are going to turn 30 this year. Mm-hmm. Will's just a couple years behind mm-hmm. us. But how much do you stress to them, hey, this is great. I'm really proud of you. But also take some time to go out and do at least just some of this stuff because Maybe one day, you never know. It might not be there. Right, it might burn right, up. It just right. I, I worry about that a lot. I remember what first brought it to mind was neither one of my boys got into the outdoors, you know, the hunting, fishing, camping, climbing kind of thing. And I never shoved it down their throat, but, I mean, they were around it forever. And at first, it really bothered me because I felt like, wow, was I taking so much time doing other things selfishly that they— And in their case, it came down to, and you'll understand this, it came down to their sports, where from the time they played flag football, entering little league and and, uh, middle school football and basketball, it's a a five-day-a-week deal now. I'll never forget the first time I became aware of what the dead period was Mm. in high school athletics. It's the one week of the year where, you know, you're allowed to take your family on a vacation because they're practicing otherwise. So I do worry about the balancing act because 
I'm very much a hypocrite in one sense that I don't do very much in moderation. Uh, <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've always struggled with that. And You and me both, brother. And I think that whether it's my kids or anybody else, I think finding a balance where you have the professional drive and determination that one needs to get where they want to go professionally, but is balanced with a healthy life otherwise, whether you're wanting to climb a mountain or any kind of recreation or chill period. You got to have that balance. So that said, I have no complaints. <laughs> they're doing they're doing extremely well, and I think they're happy. Good man. Healthy, happy. That's the motto. This has just been so great. This has just been so great. I just think it's so cool what you've been able to do and to think about the fact that you're still, what, halfway there, right? 61, <laughs> 61, and as soon as Canada will let us back in <laughs> without a 60-day quarantine or whatever, I'm, I'm going to be back up there climbing, God willing. Yeah. So we're still at it, still learning, Yeah. still learning. We're a work in progress for sure. I, I so enjoyed talking this morning, Ben. I really did, and thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Hey, before you go, drop the single most important piece of advice either about life or business or families or entrepreneurship, but what's the one thing that you think everybody who's listening to this needs to know moving forward? There's three things, very simple things. You know, I guess the, the lessons in life as far as how to live one life, and, I, and this is so simplistic, it's, it's almost flipped, but I'm, I'm just a true believer in it. that Because I remember when I was sales training, a lot of people, and guys would come in and had all these ideas about how to sell and how to talk to people. And, and my philosophy was just treat people the way you want to be treated and don't make promises you can't keep. And if you do those two things, you'll be successful and you'll be a quality person. So that would be first and foremost. The other thing that had a really profound effect on me is years and years ago, I was having a rough spot in my marriage. I was climbing a lot and doing a lot of stuff, and I would come home and I'd be just a real bastard because I didn't want to be here. You know, I wanted to be out in Colorado or I wanted to be out in Alaska or whatever. And I talked to a professional, and she's a really cool lady, and she just kind of looked at me and she says, I don't get it. She says, you can do anything you want. And this that's what I would say to you or anybody else, you know, is – we can do anything we want. We can go anywhere we want. If I want to get up and pack my bags tomorrow, if you want to, if I want to go to Timbuktu tomorrow, if I want to go say I'm going to collect purple thimbles tomorrow, I can do it. The only thing you can't do, you can bullshit everybody else. You can make excuses, but you can't lie to yourself. For every action, there's going to be a consequence, good or bad. So as far as my back then... She's like, you can go mountain climb, you know, if it's more important to you than marriage or what you're doing here, you can go. But don't kid yourself that there's not going to be a repercussion. And as long as you're okay with being honest with yourself about the repercussions of what you do, live long and prosper, as, as <laughs> Captain Kirk would say. And, <laughs> and, and that did. That had a, a very healthy effect on me. So those are my words of wisdom. Man, deep right that, there. That and, a, that and a quarter, and there's your cup of coffee, it. right? I love it. I love it. There you go. 
thanks for coming and sharing everything that you did. And thanks for the role that you played in my life, certainly as setting an example of somebody being in spaces that I hope to one day get to and being just the epitome of a good-ass dude. Thank you, Ben. And you know what a big part of our life you've been and part of the family. Yeah. Part of the family. So stay tuned. <laughs> Who knows what's next? <laughs> we'll definitely get you back on. We'll definitely have you back on. Look forward to it. Love you, man. Love you too. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode half as much as we enjoyed playing it for you because we had a ball, you know. I really enjoyed that one. I hope you did too. Brad is just an awesome human being. Fucking love that guy. And if you enjoyed this episode half as much as we did, then please let us know by dropping a quick rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It would really help me out. It would really help me out, okay? I don't ask for much, you know? I don't ask for much. So I would really, really appreciate it if you would do that for me and help contribute to the growth of this show. And come back next week because these interviews are dropping every single Wednesday, man. So we've got a lot of great guests that are on the calendar, that are on the books, that are going to be dropping every single Wednesday, moving on throughout the year, plus some surprises later that I'm excited to tease out now and tell you more about later. And there's just uh, there's an energy here, man. There's an energy here. I've been building it and building it and building it, and I am hoping that I can bring it to the level that we all deserve. <laughs> okay? Because it's right there. It's right there on the horizon. And even if the thing that I'm thinking about and talking about and referring to isn't the move, I know that one is coming, either by creating it for myself or by just, I, I, I think of myself as an axeman just taking cuts at a big tree and I don't know when the final blow is going to come, but eventually I'm going to fucking chop that motherfucker down. You feel me? That thing is coming down, man. So that's what these weekly reps are. Just another cut, just another rep, just another grind, just another interview. And they're so damn good that I enjoy it. I love it. I love it so much. And when I get to have guests on like Brad, storytellers on like Brad, and I get to connect with people this way it is just one of the best feelings in the world so shout out to everybody that's come on we've already set some record numbers here in 2022 uh, last week a meets was awesome and the week before that caleb leach became one of the top five episodes ever all-timer all-timer so when i come on and say we got an all-timer here i'm not just bullshitting man like we're putting up all-time performances and we're having some all-time guests and making some all-time episodes and producing some all-time content. And now I got a place. I got an all-time website to put it on, man. So I hope you'll check out iridewithbennyt.com. Continue hashtagging iridewithbennyt. Tuning in every Wednesday and riding with the kid. All right, my friends. That's it. Everybody have a great week. I will talk to you next week. I am Ben Tompkins. That is Real Talk. <laughs>